Lord God, you are our help in ages past, and you are our hope for years to come, and also for right now. Um, thank you for your word that has existed for so many thousands of years, for your love that has extended even longer. Today's story is a, a challenging one, and um, I just pray that the thoughts that you have put in my mind will come out clearly so that others can receive what you have given. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we um, talked about Abraham and the covenant that God cut with him, and after church, um, well, after church we had family dinner here, on, but on Zoom, and Ron said that if there was a peanut butter sandwich in the Bible, I would tell you about how the bread was made. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> these are the kinds of things that, that I do, though, and Paul and I both like to kind of look into familiar stories in the Bible and see what's, what's really there that maybe isn't immediately obvious. And so after the family dinner conversation, Paul and I kept talking, and, and the question came up, if Abraham had not asked God in chapter 15 how he could know that the promise was going to be fulfilled, would Jesus have had to die? Because God had made the promise to Abraham in chapter 12, and there was nothing about anybody dying, right? What was the promise to Abraham? Do you guys remember? <laughs> so, that's, right, so Abraham's family is chosen, and Abraham is going to become a great nation. He's going to inherit the land that God had called him to, and his great nation is going to bless the world. God is going to bless the world through them. And at this, up until that point in the Bible, there really hasn't been anything said about somebody needing to die in order for that blessing to happen, or in order to reestablish our at-one-ment with God. But then in chapter 15, God cuts this covenant, and the implication of the covenant is here are these dead animals, they're all cut up, and if this covenant is not fulfilled, may I be like these cut up animals. So during this season of Lent, this is the second Sunday of Lent, and we're asking ourselves, what did Jesus do? And what's underlying that question is, what did his life, his death, his resurrection actually do to reunite us to God, and then to everything else. We are contemplating Jesus' sacrifice that leads to celebration. Here's the thing. The question that we asked was, was probably a good one to really kind of work through, but the truth is, even if God hadn't cut the covenant, he would have still been on the hook to fulfill his promise to Abraham. And that leads to another question. Why did God need to single out a man and his not-yet-born son or descendants in order to bless the world? Couldn't he just bless the world? He could. 
Well, he could if we automatically, immediately by default, belongs to him, but, and hear me out, we actually don't. Originally, humanity and all creation belongs to God. God created us for himself. He intended to bless all of creation, to express his love to all of creation through human beings, men and women, made in his image as his co-rulers with authority over the earth. When humans first listened to the serpent who told them they could be like God if they just ate that fruit, they, we, handed over our God-given authority to other created beings who weren't supposed to have it. They weren't supposed to be in power over us in the first place. But that's what happened, and we're still stuck with it. It's like the White Witch in the Narnia stories. Aslan's the true king of Narnia, but she's the one that's got it under her power in those stories. That's exactly what this, what that story is illustrating this reality. Ultimately, God is God. The only true God, the one true God, and there is nothing that can change that, and ultimately his will will prevail. But our great God is also humble. And he honors us in our choices, even when our choices are terrible for us and for creation. He gave us authority. He wasn't, it wasn't like you can have this authority, but only if you use it right. He gave it to us, and we turned it over, and on some level, what we said goes. Because that's what God, how God set it up. Jesus himself called Satan the prince of this world. Our enemy is basically in charge. It's like we, our humans, have been kidnapped or hijacked, but somehow that happened because we chose it. It's really weird. People don't choose to be kidnapped, but apparently we did. Humans did. And the problem is that humanity's chosen masters don't love humanity. They don't love us. They don't have our best interest at heart. And because they are not the source of life, only God is, death is now part of the equation. Our kidnappers are holding us for ransom, and the ransom is human life. It's not ultimately God who demands blood. It is the spiritual powers that oppose us and oppose him. As long as humans exist, our spiritual enemies are actually in danger because God is still God and God still intends for humans to rule in his name. Our spiritual enemies are in danger because of God's promise to Abraham. As long as God made this promise to Abraham, and as long as Abraham's descendants are still around, spiritual descendants, our enemies are under threat. Because God can still accomplish what God was going to do. So, it is in our enemy's best interest to kill us. And that is what our idols do. In the present day, our idols kill us in subtle or less subtle ways, depending on what they are. They might be addiction, 
that quite obviously um, could be deadly. Might be obsession, might be warfare, might be bad habits, could be somebody else's issues. Someone dies in a car accident, might not have been that person's fault, but something, something else happened. There's the influence of the idols to kill us is present all around us. In the ancient world, though, this was even more true, because, or even more obviously true, and this is actually even still the case in some present-day societies, literal human sacrifice was required by the gods that people worshipped. I wanted to make sure I wasn't just making this up, so I went online and I googled um, ancient cultures that practiced human sacrifice or something. It's kind of a grisly thing to look up, but I found an article that is horrifyingly fascinating called 25 Cultures That Practiced Human Sacrifice by a guy named Owen Jarris. And he listed out these different cultures, and they're all over the world. Literally, every part of the world has had a culture in it that practiced human sacrifice at one point or another, and there actually was one listed that still happens in present day. There's a particular tribe that sacrifices human beings with albinism, albino people. Um, they believe that it's good luck to do this, and they even sell off body parts. This is horrifying. But the second culture on this list of 25 was the city of Ur. Do any of you know anything about the city of Ur? It's an ancient city in the region of Babylon, which is now in Iraq. And what else? Yes, it's Abraham's hometown. God gave humans real authority, and we gave it away, and he isn't going to override our choice, because if he did that, he would be just like these other gods that we have given the authority to. But he is on a mission to become rightfully king again. Our acknowledged king, not king by force. And he's on this mission for his glory, for sure, for our good, and for the restoration of creation. Because as long as these false gods are in control, everything's messed up. So, God finds one man from a culture whose gods and or rulers are demanding human sacrifice, who are vividly, literally under the curse. And he calls him up out of there, and he promises him a new land and offspring in order to bless all peoples. As the human sacrifice article illustrated graphically, all peoples are under the curse of death. All of them. But the true God is a God of relationship, and the true God is a God of life, and the true God is not like the false gods. And he proves this through the story of Abraham. He, you can see him cultivating this relationship with Abraham, this actually this friendship with Abraham. The New Testament somewhere mentions that Abraham was a friend of God for approximately 100 years. The true God does not demand human sacrifice. Right? 
Well, what about Genesis 22? <laughs> Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. This is a test. We know it's a test because it says it. Abraham doesn't know it's a test. This is what Abraham knows. He knows that this God has been talking to him for most of his life. He knows that this God makes extravagant promises and is able to fulfill them. In the When it says sometime later, sometime later refers to sometime after the 100-year-old Abraham and his 90-year-old wife had a miracle baby that God had promised them decades before. And Abraham knows that this God is different from the gods that he and his family had been serving in the city of Ur. Then God said, Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Just sit with that for a second. Imagine your kid. God comes to you. You've had this relationship with God. Most of us in here have had a relationship with God for a number of years. And suddenly God asks you for the most important thing in your life that he gave you. <laughs> right. Well, and it's interesting that Sarah's not in this account, and there might be reasons for why. Um, that's, a, that's a whole other thing. But, but yeah, I mean, the implications of this, what this must have felt like, it's an unbearable command. And it's unbearable for a couple of reasons. First of all, Isaac technically was not Abraham's only son whom he loved. Ishmael was the firstborn. And in a lot of Christian contexts, we, you know, we talk about, well, Ishmael was a, a human solution and he wasn't God's intention. And, and, but I think that sells Ishmael and Hagar short. Um, they were real human beings who were also loved by God, and we can see that in the text, too. And Ishmael was the firstborn, and Abraham loved him. It actually, it does tell us that in Genesis also. God had already made Abraham sacrifice that son by sending him away, and that was heartbreaking for Abraham, but the consolation was that here was Isaac, the miracle baby, the son of the promise, the one who was going to be the first step in the fulfillment of the blessing of the world. And now God is asking Abraham literally once and for all to sacrifice this son too, but kill him, not just send him away, actually kill him and kill the promise. And it's not this God's going to kill the promise these people that don't even exist yet are going to be blessed. Well, if we kill this boy, he's, they're not going to be blessed. It's not just that. It's personal. God is kind of, seems like he's rubbing it in. Your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Okay, thanks, God. Here's the test. Will Abraham continue in the faith that we saw last week was credited to him as righteousness, or will he, like Adam and Eve before him, turn over the dominion of the world to the false gods 
again. What kind of God does Abraham believe God is? And is he willing to let God be God? This is really kind of the question that Adam and Eve faced and that all of us face on a somewhat regular basis. What kind of God do we believe God is, and are we willing to let God be God? The answer to these questions will literally determine the fate of humanity, Abraham's answer to these questions. And it looks like there are really only two choices, and either way, Abraham and we all lose. The first choice is he can obey what God says because he now believes God is actually not that different from the gods who left after all, but he's God, so I, 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 gotta, I gotta obey him. I guess he's just the same as all the other ones. But if he believes that God is no different than in all of the bloodthirsty other gods, then his faith will no longer be credited to him as righteousness because the faith that was credited to him as righteousness was that this God had called him to bless humanity. And these other gods are a curse. And if God is just like the other gods, then he's not going to bless. And the faith is dead. And Abraham will destroy the promise by killing Isaac no matter what. If God showed up, if Abraham believes that God is like the other gods, and God shows up and says, oh no, don't kill him after all, Abraham will say, no, no, you're just like the other gods, and kill him anyway. And then the promise is dead. So that's one thing. He can obey thinking that God is like all the other gods. Or he can disobey by convincing himself that God is different than all the other gods and would never ask such a thing as human sacrifice. He could talk himself out of it. He could say, no, no, God would never ask something like this. That's impossible. That's not the kind of God I serve. And then he would be disobeying. And when he disobeyed, then that God would no longer be his God. Either way, the false gods remain in charge. I know, it's really confusing. It, <laughs> it's taken me more than this week to try to understand this and talk about it in words. So we can keep batting this around um, at a later date if you want to. But either way, God and Abraham have a problem unless there's a third way. And there is always a third way, the narrow way. The way that is not immediately obvious, that's not exactly the, the middle of the two obvious options, the way that is really hard to see, that is the way of Jesus. Hold that thought. The story as it's written progresses in heartbreaking detail. I'm going to reread it. I'm not going to talk in, in between the verses. I'm just going to reread it. And close your eyes and listen, imagining that you are Abraham and you just got this command from God. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering... He set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, it's a long time to have this in your mind, 
Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Here we have the hint that Abraham might just find the narrow way. That he might just pass this test. We will come back to you. He is obeying the unbearable command, but his faith that somehow this God is still not like the other gods and will in fact keep his promise through Isaac is intact. We will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Okay, stop. I have never in my entire life read a story directly from the Bible that made me weep. I don't think I can ever read this story without weeping again. It's so heartbreaking. Imagine being Abraham and knowing what God has told you to do and bringing your son and your son is trusting you. Father, where is the lamb? It is heartbreaking. And then, as I was reading it and weeping, I suddenly felt that same heartbroken dread of God. God sacrificed his son. <laughs> and he knew what was going to happen, and his son knew what was going to happen, but still this horror of death and sacrifice that is not how it's supposed to be. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, says Abraham. And it's the, the next hint that he's going to pass this test. And the two of them went on together. But the story keeps still breaks it down into agonizing detail. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Then, finally, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. The moment he'd been waiting for, hoping for, trusting for, that this God was not like the gods he had left in earth. That this God to whom he had dedicated his own life and now the life of his son was not like those gods. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, the real God, not the other gods, because you have not withheld from me your son your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it 
as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. It is most likely that this mountain that Abraham took Isaac is the same one that was just outside of Jerusalem that we know as Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. God asked Abraham to trust him with everything, and God gave Abraham everything. His son, God's son, God's only son, whom he loves. So Abraham's son, all of Abraham's spiritual descendants of all nations, can live. This is... This idea that we're talking about today is called the ransom theory of atonement, and it is the oldest and longest um, lasting idea of how the atonement works. Um, it was kind of understood by the earliest Christians since the apostles for about a thousand years, and it's focused on this idea on the mountain of the Lord the substitute, the ransom was provided. Both the true God and the false gods want our lives. The true God wants us to live, empowered by his love and authority. The false gods want to kill us. They are the ones demanding our blood. They are the ones demanding child sacrifice, one of the main reasons the people of Canaan got kicked out so the Israelites could live there. And it's one of the main reasons why God got so mad with Israel at the time of the exile that they had to leave the land too. Because once again, humans were willingly giving their authority and their children's lives for false gods who wanted to destroy them. The wages of sin is death when the sin is that we chose and still choose created beings, not God, to be our master. The false gods demand their payment. And God plays by his own rules. He won't force his kingship because if he did, he would be exactly the same kind of tyrant that all of them are. God called Abraham up out of the city of human sacrifice and ransomed his son of promise with a lamb in the thicket. This entire test and the substitute ram had to happen to Abraham and Isaac as the ones, the forerunners, the ones through whose offspring God was going to bless and restore life to the whole world, to all of humanity. The ram in the thicket, and in a way the sacrifices that God would institute in Exodus, was something like a placeholder. It's still a life. It's still blood. It's not the human life and the human blood that the false gods demand, but it's like a placeholder until the appointed time when God would pay off the false gods once for all by substituting the life of his own son for our lives, demanding, satisfying the demand for sacrificial blood. Jesus is the ram in the thicket for all of us. He is the ransom that paid off the gods. As Abraham believed God enough to offer him everything and watch him turn it to life, 
And it was credited to him as righteousness, so can we. And it will be credited to us as righteousness, too. And as through our ransomed lives, God becomes king in the world again, things will begin to turn back right side up the way they were meant to be. This is another way to look at what Jesus did. Another way to look at the atonement. Lord, let us never forget what you have done for us in your great mercy and your great love. You didn't have to play by our rules, but you gave us the authority and you honored that, and you are a great and humble God who gave us everything. Thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.